Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Church, it's good to be before you again one more morning, although it's bittersweet. While I love to be before you, opening God's word together, um, I, do miss, I do miss our pastor. I do miss Tyler being here. So we will continue to pray that that time away has been good and refreshing and that um, the whole Sulci family returns to us uh, renewed. And as even as Jeff was praying and he referenced Hebrews 13. Um, I was sobered by it, right? He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will get, have to give an account. And if I'm honest with you, I've felt the weight of those sobering words this week that uh, it is no light, easy thing that we enter into, uh, opening God's word together before one another. But uh, even as we do it, it is, even as I do it, it is one who is keeping watch over your souls, and I will have to give an account for this, which can lead me to despair or depression, perhaps. But then that verse continues, let them do, do this with joy and not with uh, groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. And I'm reminded of the joy that we have that comes from serving our Lord. That um, even as we were about to talk about this morning, that there is joy in doing this. And so it is a joy for me to be before you this morning. Um, as we are sitting here getting settled in, hopefully, to Second John, there is a question that I often ask myself. I, I wonder if you ask yourselves this question. But uh, where is our love for God and our faith in Christ most clearly seen? What is the truest test of the doctrine that we believe? Is our love for God seen by the books we read, by the um, songs we sing? Is our love for God seen by our attendance here, even on a Sunday morning? or a Sunday school, or a prayer service, or a Bible study, is the evidence of what we believe, what we say we believe. While our love for God is not less than any of these things, everything just described could be done by someone who has no love for God or faith in Christ. No, I think the truest test of who we love and what we believe, our functional theology, as it were, what we think and who we are is what we think and who we are the rest of the time, 
when we're not doing any of those things that I just mentioned? Who are we when we're in our home, for example, and no one is there to see us but God? Who are we in our everyday conversations and chores? Who are we in the mundane of life? What do we think about when we go to sleep? What do we think about when we rise each day? What is the truth that we are walking in moment by moment? The verses that we're focusing on this morning from 2 John, I pray, will focus our hearts on what is of foremost importance for each moment of our lives. So let's stand together as I read the entirety of 2 John. When I get done, I will say, this is the word of Lord, and we together will say, thanks be to God, because we are thankful for God's word. 2 John, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, church. Lord, how we need your word this morning. For we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. May your perfect word have its perfect work in our hearts, and so transform each of us here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Our focus this morning will be on verses 4 through 6. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful. Let me reread those verses once more for our focus. I rejoice greatly, John writes, to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is, his, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John has grounded this letter to the elect lady and her children in both love and in truth. Because he knows the truth, 
because he knows Jesus and because the truth of Jesus abides in him, he truly loves to those, those to whom he is writing. So he greets them with grace, mercy, and peace that can only come from our, the Father and the Son. The grace, mercy, and peace that will be with all of them and with us as we continue in truth and love. And where does truth and love lead? Well, it leads to joy. And that's the first point in our outline this morning. Walking in the truth leads to the greatest joy. Walking in the truth leads to the greatest joy. We read there, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Brings up the question, well, what do we rejoice in? What brings us joy? Is there any truer test of who we are than what we truly enjoy doing? Because what we truly enjoy doing, we find ourselves doing. What we truly enjoy doing, we find ourselves talking about. So the question is, what do we find ourselves doing? What do we find ourselves talking about? Many of us are very, very busy. I don't know anyone that's not busy. But when we do have free time for our actions and for our thoughts, what do we find ourselves choosing to do most often? And more than that even, what is the greatest of all of our joys? What wins out? Well, John rejoices, and what does he rejoice in? But that he found some of the elect ladies' children walking in the truth. Well, who are these children? Well, perhaps they are actual children of the elect lady if we take a literal reading of the entire letter. Or perhaps they are spiritual children of that same lady. If we read 2 John as a letter to the church personified as the elect lady, then these children would be members of that church, those who are unified together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, through the letter of 1 John, that's exactly how the elder John addresses his readers. Those within the church, little children, beloved children, children of God, not children of the devil. So John writes here that he found some of your children walking in the truth. Now it could be that he found many children of this lady and some of them were walking in the truth. This understanding will perhaps then speak to a division within the church, maybe hinted at later on in the letter. A division that would be caused by those who were led astray by deceivers. So John is rejoicing that some of the children remain true to the faith. Or we could understand this phrase, I found some of your children and all of them were walking in the truth. Perhaps that's the, uh, even the evidence that John had that they were, in fact, her children. That they were walking in the truth. And if we think about it, what other evidence do we have to use that we know who are God's children? If you read 1 John 3.10, you can see there that John writes, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So perhaps it's evident that these are God's children because they are doing exactly what God says to do. They are walking in the truth. And what is meant by this phrase, walking in the truth? Well, we've already hinted at it already this morning. But in short, walking in the truth is doing what the truth says to do. Obeying 
God's commands. But walking in the truth begins by knowing the truth. And more than just knowing the truth, but having the truth abide in us. The truth is the teaching of Christ. Again, if we read ahead to verses 9 through 11, we see that those who are deceivers are those who go on ahead and do not abide in the teaching of Christ. They do not bring the truth. They do not bring Christ. Their works are wicked. They do not have the Father or the Son. But the truth is, more than this, the teaching of Christ, but Christ himself, who is the truth. So when we teach anything from the Bible, when we're counseling someone with the Bible, when we are evangelizing someone based on truths in the Bible, we are doing far more than offering people a true teaching, although we are doing that. We're offering something more than just a set of insights and principles of redemption. We are offering those people the Redeemer himself. It's in his power we find hope and help and the only real means of lasting change. Christ is the only one who saves. So the truth is Christ himself. So to walk in the truth that we, means we must know Christ savingly. He must be who is abiding in us. But we are not just to know the truth, but we are to walk in the truth. That was the reason for the commandment, as John writes there. Walk in the truth is doing what God commands. But why this phrase, walking? Why not just say obeying? I think walking refers to how we are actually living our life. Not just what we know, but what we're actually doing. And notice the phrase isn't running, although there is a place for running in the Christian life. But there's a sense of pace with the term walking. Walking is this common mode of travel in Jesus' day. It's how many or most people would get anywhere. If we think back to the Gospels, the narratives, how much of them describe Jesus and the disciples walking from place to place? They would spend much of their days walking. So this idea of walking in the truth conveys the idea of living one's whole life step by step according to the teaching of Christ. They were obeying his commands. They were living like Christ. So what does John do when he finds those who are walking in the truth? Well, he rejoices. And not only does he rejoice, but he rejoices greatly. In fact, he has no greater joy. Well, how can I say that? Well, flip over in my Bible. It's the next page. But go to uh, 3 John. And what do we read there beginning in verse 3? For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testify to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Does John really mean this? Does he have no greater joy than this? Well, I don't think he's lying. And I don't even think he's exaggerating here. He has no greater joy than to find those walking as Jesus himself walked. Well, why would that be? I think it's because he has no greater joy than Jesus Christ himself. And so he has no greater joy than his own walking in the truth, his own obeying of Jesus' commands. And shouldn't that be the end goal of our own walking? If we continue to push this metaphor of walking, if we are walking, where are we walking to? What's the destination? 
Is it not to joy? What does Paul write to the Corinthian church? Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. That's from 2 Corinthians 1.14. What did Paul write to the Philippian church? Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So we go toward God in whose presence is the fullness of joy. So walking in the truth leads to the greatest joy. And God's command, God commands us to walk in the truth because in obeying his commands, step by step, day by day, we will have the greatest joy. And isn't this, in fact, what Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 15 that we read earlier? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you, and that your joy may be full. Often we think of obeying as drudgery, (laughs) the thing you don't want to do. You find that's not a biblical notion, is it? That truly in obeying what God commands, we will have full joy. That leads to our next point. Walking in the truth is obeying the Father's old command to love him. I'll say that again. Walking in the truth is obeying the Father's old command to love him. Let's return to 2 John, if you're not there already. There we read, beginning again in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dearly, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Notice here, in these four verses, the emphasis on the word command. It occurs, uh, rather these three verses, the word command occurs four times. We were commanded by the Father to walk in the truth. We are to love one another, which is not a new command, but one they, in fact, have from the beginning. In fact, the true test of love for God is that we walk in his commands. All right, that's what we read there. And this is love that we walk according to his commands. We can compare that with what John wrote in 1 John 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God. Right, we want to know what the love of God is. 1 John 5, 3 reads that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And what is chief among God's commands? How can we sum up walking in the truth? What's the Cliff Notes version, right? Well, it's that we love one another. But if you notice our notes here, that's not what I said. I said walking in the truth is obeying the Father's old command to love him. But what we just said was, we sum up the, the commands to love one another. So did I just misspeak? Did I get that wrong? 
Hopefully not, although I may misspeak this morning. That wasn't when I misspoke. John says the old command, the one that they had from, they had from the beginning, is that we love one another. But I just said the old command was to love God. Well, why would either of those, loving God or loving one another, be considered the commandments? How can either of those summarize all the doctrine of Christ, all the truth that we are to be walking in? Well, you're going to love this answer. It's because the Bible says so. Because <laughs> the Bible tells me so, right? So in Galatians 5, if you want a reference for this, Galatians 5 and verse 13, Paul writes, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we could take that one verse and say, okay, this is it. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. But what is the ground of that one word? For we do not begin by loving our neighbors, but that's where we end up. Where do we begin? Let's turn together to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. I love the sound of flipping pages in Bibles during church service. <laughs> I think there's a sense of unity as we do that, right? We're in God's word together. We're flipping pages together. We're seeing what God has to say to us. That's not in the sermon, but <laughs> it's in my heart right now. So what's the ground for this word, this one word? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34 but when the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Christ, a question to test him. By the way, it's not a good idea to test the Lord. You will fail that test, and he will pass that test. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, comes, comes from Leviticus 19. It's there talking about the people of God. right? Who was your neighbor? It's the people of God. So we are to love our neighbor, our own people, or rather God's own people, as ourself. So that's where we get this idea that walking in the truth is obeying the Father's old command to love God. It's because the foundation of the command to love our neighbor is our love for God. And the expression of our love for God is primarily expressed in love for our neighbor. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but as you gaze upon the object of your love... Are you not transformed by the object of your love to become more like the object of your love? You have someone you admire and you find yourself kind of acting like they act. I know as a kid in elementary school, that's why I ended up doing the kid that was the cool kid. It wasn't me, but they, I ended up like trying to kind of mimic their behavior. 
So part of it, it's not just this, uh, well, if I love God, then I will love my neighbor. In our love of God, there is a transformation that takes place within us because as we gaze upon, as we meditate upon this object of our love, we are being transformed and then so are able then to love. We want to love and we want to love like our Father, the object of our love, loves. More to the point or stated negatively, and this is sobering for us, right? From 1 John 4.20, if you want a reference to this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Right? And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you know someone who doesn't love others, but in fact hates them? And by hate, I don't necessarily mean there's outright hostility or anger, although that would be a dead giveaway, I think. But by hate, I mean anything that isn't love. Love as defined by the Bible, which is seeking that person's highest good according to the truth of Scripture. So what isn't love? Well, love is being, not, not loving, <laughs> is being impatient. It's being unkind. It's perhaps justifying your impatience or kindness thinking you're righteous and being impatient or unkind. It's hatred is lovelessness or a lukewarmness, especially for God's people. For where there is a lovelessness or a lukewarmness for God's people, is there not a lovelessness and lukewarmness for God himself? So the old command is from the Father. We are to love him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Our whole being is to love God. And then because we love God, we love those made in his image. We love even our enemies. But especially those who have been made new in Christ. And I would say, wouldn't it be an indictment of our hearts if we actually had more fellowship and more love for those who aren't Christians than we do for Christians? What would that say about us if it's like, I would rather spend time with these people who don't know God than the people who do know God? But what we see here is that this is not a new commandment. John isn't asking this dear lady and her children toward obedience to something brand new. God has always commanded us to love one another. So perhaps that's all John is saying when he writes back in 2 John, not as though I were writing you a new commandment that we love one another. We've known this from the beginning. It seems, though, that there might be more to what he's saying there given the centrality of Christ and his teaching in the remainder of the letter. 
for what was an old command by, given by the Father was made new, in a sense, with the coming of Christ. And so that's our third point. Walking in the truth is obeying the Son's new command to die for one another. Walking in the truth is obeying the Son's new command to die for one another. Before we get back to 2 John, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verses 7 through 11. And um, I didn't put any verse references next to this because I'm not sure it would be super or quite obvious as an exposition of this particular three verses. But as we hopefully grow in understanding of the whole counsel of God, as we read these um, books of the Bible, as we become more familiar with it, we see kind of these themes jumping out, right? We see the connection that not, not these discontinuous um, letters written, but the whole unity of Scripture. So here, um, where I get walking in the truth is obeying the Son's new commandment to die for one another, um, is not obvious in 2 John, but I think it becomes really quite obvious in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7-11. through 11. There, John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again there, especially in verse 8, at the same time, this old commandment, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. So to love our neighbors as ourselves is the truest display of our obedience to the old commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And yet, who epitomized true obedience? And who epitomized true love? Is it not the Son, Jesus Christ? As one commentator put it, Jesus' own love for the Father was manifested in his obedience. And where did that walk of obedience, that walking in the truth step by step lead? Well, it led to the cross. It led to Jesus' death. So the old command is made new that in our love for one another, we would die for one another. Say that again. The old command to love one another was made new and that we would actually die for one another. In fact, that's what we read earlier in the service from John 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another. So there we have it again, that we love one another. This is Christ commanding this. Well, how? 
how we look to love one another. As I have loved you, Jesus says. Well, how exactly did Jesus love? He goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the greatest love we can have for one another is to lay down our lives for other sheep, to die for one another. And the question might be, well, how do we do this? Because you can only die once, right? And then that's it, right? Is it over? I've done it. I've died. Or is it the case that until we have died for someone, we haven't really loved them as we are commanded by Christ? This is God's command that we die for one another, but how do we do this? Well, we can lay down our lives because the first step, as it were, in following Christ is to die to ourselves, is to deny these very lives that we have. What did Paul write to the Galatians? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Why why was that true? It's because he had been crucified with Christ. So it was no longer he who lived. But this idea of denying ourselves as the first step in following Christ comes from the very words of Christ himself, who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and follow him. Where does the cross lead? (laughs) To our death, right? There was a German pastor who said that um, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die or come to die, right? Christians are those who are already dead because we've been crucified with Christ. But our obeying the Son's command to love one another is not live primarily in the giving of our life as Christ gave his life in a once-for-all sacrifice. We are not anyone else's Savior. There is one Savior, Christ the man. But our love of one another in giving our lives is lived as Jesus lived every moment that led to the cross of Calvary. And how did Jesus live every moment of his life that led to Calvary but as a servant? We think about this. Wasn't Jesus living as a servant? Wasn't he giving up his own life every moment from his incarnation, through his baptism, through his three-year ministry, through his, un, through his suffering and unjust accusations during his trial? In fact, I think we could say if Jesus wasn't living as a servant and dying to himself before the cross, then he could not be dying as a savior of all people on the cross. Let's turn to Philippians 2 together, where we can see perhaps this come together and hopefully provide each of us a great encouragement in this. Philippians 2, verses uh, 1 through 11. 
There Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pause a moment at verse 4 there. I think we see here fleshed out what this love to one another looks like. There's affection, there's sympathy. We have this same love. We are full of cord and of one mind. We are not being selfish. We don't have selfish ambitions or conceit. We're thinking highly of ourselves, right? But we have humility. In fact, we count others more significant than ourselves. Let us, each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's interesting, you know, when you say, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not saying, well, don't love yourself, but in the ways that you love yourself, love your neighbor in that way, right? Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, in a way that kind of informs us how we're to love others. How would we want to ourselves be loved? Well, how do we do this? How is this possible within the church? And thankful that the Lord gives us the answer in his word. And we're not left to ourselves. In verse 5, Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what do we need? How can we do verses 1 through 4? We have to have the mind of Christ. And what is the mind of Christ? Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a what? Of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming there's that dirty word again, obedient, right? Obedient to the Father's command, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do we get the mind of Christ? <laughs> how can we have the mind of Christ to answer the questions that we've begun asking ourselves this morning? Where is our love for God and where is our faith in Christ most clearly seen? Well, I don't think it's now. <laughs> it's not as I am before you now even saying these words. This is not the clearest display of my love for God and my faith in Christ. 
when would that be? Well, it's probably an hour from now or this evening when I'm tired and there's something that I feel like I deserve. I, it's like I deserve this. I need a nap. It's Father's Day after all. And it's in that moment that my love for God and my faith in Christ would be most clearly seen when none of you are around. And perhaps we are tempted as we go through these verses here that we would be thinking not about ourselves but of others. Right? It's like, oh yeah, I know some people who don't love. I hope they're here hearing this sermon. I hope they're reading these verses. They really need to hear these verses. And how ironic is it that in the Christian faith, when we ought to be thinking about others, we're thinking about ourselves. And when we should be thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about others. We have it backwards, right? But how? How can I equip you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, with these verses? How can we take these truths we've learned and not come away with this? So it's like, well, I think I know more about what it's talking about, but not be equipped to live life. How do we walk in a way, in the truth, that leads to our greatest joy? Well, the first is that we must know the truth. The truth of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than knowing about the gospel and being able to recite it, we must know Christ as our Savior. We must know him experientially. Do you know Christ this morning? Do you know his mercy? Do you know his peace? Do you know his goodness? Do you know what Peter writes about, that you've tasted and seen the Lord is good? If not, perhaps this is the day you'd want to know more about the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But more than knowing the truth, we must abide in that truth. That truth must permeate our being. We steep ourselves in the truth. right? So that's why we read God's word. To know what that is, it comes, it's in every pore of our body. And then we walk in that truth. The truth does not just change our behavior. This is not behavior modification. Earning our way to God. But it is transformative. Our very desires and affections change, which is impossible apart from God. If you think about the things that you like, why do you like those things? Did you choose to like those things? Or it's like, well, that's just how I was. And the things I hate, I hate. The things I like, I like. Well, how can we love one another? How can we love fellow sinners? How can we love God when we are so consumed by self? It's not because we can get ourselves there. It's because God has transformed us. Our very affections, our very desires. So we obey the command of the Father to love him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Yes, there is something we do. We devote ourselves to the most sincere expression of our love through our love for one another. The people in this room the people that are not in this room but you will see throughout the week, that you will see next Sunday, Lord willing. And what does that love look like? When you see these people, when you think about them perhaps on a Saturday night as you're preparing your heart to come here, what is it that you're thinking about? Well, perhaps we should be thinking about how we can be a servant to that person, how we can deny ourselves, give of ourselves for that person. 
How can we actively pursue, first and foremost, not our own desires, but the highest good of someone else? And what is that highest good? To make them feel good about themselves, to kind of puff up their, their ego, perhaps, but not primarily. We seek the highest good of one another by seeking that they know the truth. We call them back to the truth. Are they walking in the truth? We desire their holiness. We desire their love for Christ. We desire their joy and faith in him because that is our joy and our faith. And this will be painful at times because we will be killing what remains of the old man in ourselves. That selfish, self-exalting man. Now, how often do our thoughts tend toward others? Are we constantly thinking about ourselves? What we want, what we need, what we deserve, what will make us happy? And how often are we thinking about what is best for others? And how willing are we to love one another, even when it means, and especially when it means, denying ourselves and our desires? We cannot have our cake and eat it too. Well, I can have this and I can have this. I can love myself and I can love others. Very often, if we're being real with ourselves, to love others means you don't get this thing. There is sacrifice involved. So when our love grows cold, and it will, when the obedience seems to come at too great of a cost, and it will, what are we to do? When we're getting ready to take our nap on the couch, to read that book that we've been meaning to read, and when now we got a moment to ourselves, when we've had a long, exhausting day and we're asleep and the dog starts barking, what are we to do in those very real mundane moments? Well, I would encourage you, brother and sister in Christ, that we are to look to Christ himself. We are to look and see what a true servant looks like. One who's walking in the truth meant obeying the Father's command to love above all else. One who's walking in the truth led to love for others. In fact, to shame and humiliation and death. But one who's walking in the truth led to unsurpassing joy. So let us each, together and all, look to Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together, church. Lord, I pray that you would Forgive us even now. I know that my own heart is convicted by these verses that I see in reading them how often my own love has fallen short of your love for me. How often my love has grown cold. How I do not take you out your word. I think, no, Lord, you are not right. I'm not going to gain the greatest joy in loving others 
I need to find the greatest joy by pursuing it myself because I'm not going to have joy otherwise. Pray, God, that you would forgive each of us for whom that might be true this morning for believing that lie, for that is not what your word says. Your word says it is more blessed to give than to receive. That in obeying you, we find ourselves aligned with Christ. We find ourselves having the mind of Christ, especially when it costs us, especially when it's painful, especially when there's humility and shame. But where does that lead? For it does not end there, but it leads us to you, to the altar of God, in fact, to God, our exceeding joy. And so I pray, God, that even as we close and finish our time together today, that not because of anything I've said, but because of what your word has said, we would not be the same as when we arrived here today. That we find ourselves in the mundane of life, in everyday tasks and conversations, not thinking about self, but thinking about how to love others well. That we would be thinking about Christ all the time because he is our joy. And as we think about Christ and his humiliation and his servanthood, that we would love well. We know that it is not in us to do this, but it's only because of your grace to us. So we pray, God, that your grace would abound, that we might have all sufficiency in all things at all times, that we would abound then in every good work, in the good work of loving one another, even as Christ has loved us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.